You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, you have said that your word is living and active, sharper than any sword, penetrating to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, you have made it able to judge the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So please today help me, enable me to speak your word faithfully, and please cause it to do what you have promised it will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, by way of getting into uh, our passage today, um, I'm going to tell you a story. It's an imagined story. Uh, I made it up. Today was one of Deborah's favourite days of the year. Today was the Feast of Weeks. Yesterday they had gathered the greenery and uh, the flowers, they had decorated the house with what they had gathered and this recalled the ancient presentation of the first fruits of harvest. Um, it also recalled the stories that said that the desert bloomed with flowers when the Lord gave the law to his people. And then Deborah headed off to bed. As she did, she noted the tiredness in her father's eyes. But she also saw his inward peace and joy. And she knew where it came from. He had been up all night. Like generations of Jewish men before him, he had spent the night studying the law, the Torah. Later the whole family would go off to synagogue and hear the reading of the ten words. And then Deborah's favourite moment would come. They would read the book of Ruth. She was not sure why they did it, but Deborah was just so glad when she heard the story. After all, it was only one of two books in the whole Hebrew Scriptures devoted to a woman. One was the book of Esther and the other was this one, Ruth. Like Esther, it was a book about a most unlikely heroine. But it was more. It was also a book about love and a book about godliness and a book about God and his unique and generous love. Deborah knew the story backwards. But she always learned something new. And yes, she thought to herself, today would be a good day. Sisters and brothers in Christ. My fictional person, Deborah, is right. Uh, This short book is one of the most exciting, I think, and stimulating books in the Old Testament. And uh, to help you out, it's shorter. And in our time together over the coming weeks, we're going to look at each chapter. So a chapter each week, and my prayer is that your lives will be transformed by what we learn. However, before we get underway, we have to do some of that background work that you need to do so that you can understand what the, where the passage is going and where it belongs. And the first thing I'm going to do is teach you a bit of Hebrew. Now, I hope that by the time I have finished ministering here with you in the coming months, years and so on, you will know this word as well as I do. Here it is. The first word we, we, we are going to learn, or you are going to learn, is a word kesed. Now, that's a bit difficult to, for us to do with our language background, but it, basically you say that word right down the back of your throat. Chesed. I've overemphasized it, but nevertheless, that's it. In many ways, it is the word used to describe the character of God in the Old Testament. Let me show you. I want you to open your Bibles at Exodus 24. I don't worry, we'll eventually get to Ruth, but Exodus 24 is important. And I want you to, oh sorry, 34, verses 6 to 7. Let me give you a big picture of the book of Exodus. 
the first half of the book of Exodus is about God's rescue of his people from slavery in Egypt. He performs marvellous deeds of, in, in the plagues and he rescues them through the sea in chapter 14. Then he woos them in the wilderness in chapters 15 to 18. And then he firms up his relationship with them in chapter 19. And then he tells them that he has brought them to himself and made them his special people. They are his, he is theirs. Then he tells them how to live in that, the relationship that they've entered through giving them his law, telling them what the rules of the engagement are, as it were. And Israel signs up over and over again, they say, what the Lord has spoken, we will do. Moses then goes up to Mount Sinai to receive the details of God's law from his people, for his people. And the central element of what is given to Moses up on that mountain is known as the ten words, or as we would know them, the ten commandments. Then in chapter 32 of Exodus, we're told that what happened down the bottom of the mountain. So Moses up the top of the mountain, people down the bottom of the mountain. While God is giving the law to Moses up the top of the mountain, Israel is down the bottom of the mountain breaking the first two commandments. In chapter 32, the Lord acts with holy anger. He threatens to wipe out his people. Then Moses intercedes for the people and the Lord relents. And then Moses says, well, let show me your glory. That is, show me who you are. But the Lord does not allow that. However, he does allow Moses to see him pass by and to hear his word about himself. And you can find that word in Exodus 34, verses 6 to 7, and it goes like this. The Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion and sin, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Now let me read it to you with my special word. Well, God's special word, Kesed, in it. So keep your eye on it, watch the English and listen for the Hebrew. Here we go. The Lord, the Lord, is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in Kesed and truth maintaining chesed to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Did you hear it? This is who God is. He is the one who gives unexpected, unearned, unwarranted and overwhelming love. This is who God is. He is the God of chesed. He's the one who gives this. Please soak it in. Please remember it. And now, let's explore the book of Psalms. Now, if you've got digital versions or the ordinary or the paper versions, please turn in your Bible to Psalm 136. Follow along with me. I'm going to read verses 1 to 3 and I'm going to insert this word chesed. It reads like this. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His chesed endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, his chesed endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, his chesed endures forever. Can you hear it? It's profound. 
His Kesed so defines him that Israel can recount their history as being a story of Kesed in action. He constantly, this Lord constantly does the, the surprising and unexpected. When you expect him to act in judgment, he can turn things round and work in unexpected mercy and love. But before we leave Psalm 136, I want to show you something else. I want you to look at verse 1. I want you to notice that the word Lord is written in capital letters. Now, some of you will probably know this, that whenever our English translations do that, they're telling us that the original Hebrew word was God's special name. And that special name was probably pronounced Yahweh. And it consisted of four letters, because Hebrew people didn't put vowels in. Right, so four letters, y, uh, the equivalent of our Y-H-W-H. Now, that special name has special connotations. We saw them back in Exodus 34, because the Lord in Exodus 34 repeats his name twice. He repeats Kesed twice. He is the Lord, the Lord, Kesed, Kesed. Can you hear it? The Lord, the Lord, Kesed, Kesed. If you want to know the heart of this God, it is Kesed. Now, I guess you might ask, Andrew, what's all this about? <laughs> I thought we were looking at Ruth here, not Exodus. Well, the reason is that the book of Ruth uses Kesed a number of times. It shows God exercising Kesed a number of times. And in many ways, I think the whole book is an exploration of the term. So keep it in mind in the background that I've given you and the background that I've given you. Anyway, sorry, we have to do all this stuff when you start a series. Okay, next thing, there is one more bit of background. I need to tell you about a group of people called the Moabites. Moabites come into the biblical story in Genesis chapter 19. There, you might remember if you've read Genesis, God rescues Lot and his daughters from a place, two places called Sodom and Gomorrah, sister cities. They take refuge in the mountains. And the daughters of Lot are at this point without husbands. And so they make their dad drunk. Not a pretty story. Then they sleep with him and become pregnant. The firstborn daughter gives birth to a son. And she names his son Moab. He is the ancestor of the Moabites. That's in Genesis 19 if you want to read that story. But the story of the relationship between the Israelites and the Moabites, well, doesn't finish there. Because when we move into the book of Numbers, it tells us that the people of Israel are heading to the promised land and the king of Moab, well, he employs Balaam, a pagan prophet, to curse and trick them. That fails. So they try another strategy. Engaging the Israelite women sexually. That's Numbers 31 verse 16. And many Israelite men fall for the trap and God judges their sin with a great plague amongst the Israelites. And the result for the Israelites is the Moabites become a despised people because they led them astray such. Just listen to what God has to say in Deuteronomy. It's in Deuteronomy 23 verses 3 to 4 and it reads like this. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the Lord's assembly. None of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, may enter the Lord's assembly. And this is because 
They did not meet you with food and water on the journey after you came out of Egypt. And because Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor in Aram Naharim, was hired to curse you. Moabites are not just foreigners in the Bible or in the Old Testament. They are not just the products of incest. They are avowed and despised enemies of God and his people. So there we are. That's all foundational stuff just to get us underway. Now you can turn to Ruth. Um, let's go through the main sections. First section begins in verse, goes from verses 1 to 7. It gives us the setting of the story. Let's have a look at it together. We're given the big picture. It's the time of the judges. And this was noticed earlier on. That is, it's before the time when there were kings. God ruled over his people through spirit-empowered judges. Then we're given the main figures of the story and their history. Unusually, unusually for the Bible, the focus is two women. Each of the women are related to an apparently Jewish man, Elimelech. He's from a place called Bethlehem in Judah. The first woman, Naomi, is introduced verse 2. See it there? She and Elimelech have two Jewish sons, Marlon and Chilion. Verse 1 tells us that this Jewish family at some time moved to Moab, a foreign country, and Elimelech died there, verse 3. Then in verse 4 we're told that the sons marry Moabite women. One is called Orpah and the other is Ruth. So that's the big setting. But there is a problem. What's the problem? The problem is that this Jewish woman is in a foreign land and she has no husband. Then the two sons die after about ten years. Now she has no children of her own and two daughters-in-law without husbands. That brings us to verse 6. Can you see it there? Some welcome news and a possible way ahead. We hear that the Lord has acted in Israel and provided food. So verse 7, Naomi left the place where she had been living, accompanied by her two daughters-in-law and travelled along the road leading back to the land of Judah. So there's the first section of chapter 1. Hang on in there. We need all of this to, to get to where we need to go. Second section goes from verse 8 to 18. In verse 8, Naomi urges each of the daughters to return to Moab and find rest in the house of a new husband. And first they refuse, verse 10, but Naomi insists in verses 11 to 13. She doesn't want them to share her sad situation, you see. Uh, If they come with her, what will they be? Well, they'll be poor, childless widows in a foreign land with no prospect of marriage. And in those days, that's very serious. That's what's going on here in verses 11 to 13. Eventually, Orpah listens to reason, caves in and heads back, but not Ruth. At the end of verse 14, we're told that Ruth clings to Naomi. The word used for the, is the same word used of clinging to a husband back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. But Naomi won't let up. In verse 15, she says to Ruth, no, no, follow Orpah's lead, it's the best thing for you. In verse 16, Ruth refuses. And her words of refusal, I think, are some of the most delightful words in all of devotion in all of Scripture. So I'm just going to get you to just stop for a moment and listen to them. In verses 16 and 17, she says to Naomi, don't plead with me to abandon you. 
or return and not follow you? For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me and do so severely if anything but death separates you from me. That's potent, isn't it? Faced with such determination, Naomi caves in and she accepts in verse 18. That brings us to the third section of our story. Verses 19 to 22. In verse 19, the two women arrive back in Bethlehem. The village is excited. The women wonder at Naomi and say, can this be Naomi? Perhaps age and bitterness had marked her face and she was no longer recognisable. But notice how she responds. Verses 20 and 21. We've just heard warm and devoted words from Ruth. Naomi's response, oh, it's marked by bitterness. And to understand what she's saying, again, we need to know a little bit of Hebrew. First, the name Naomi comes from a Hebrew word meaning pleasant. Second, the name Mara comes from a Hebrew word meaning make better, bitter. Look at what Naomi says in verses 20 to 21. She says, don't call me pleasant. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, bitter. For the Almighty has made me very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has opposed me and the Almighty has afflicted me? It's potent, isn't it? The two references to Yahweh, the Lord, are sandwiched between two references to the Almighty. It's a very strong way of putting her feelings. They make clear that it was he who mistreated her in her view. That's where Naomi is. She's distraught, empty, bitter. And then in verse 22, the chapter is summarised. Chapter 22 and chapter 2 is looked forward to. They arrive in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. There's the story, just in brief. And I've tried to open it up so that you can see things that maybe you wouldn't have recognised in the English. So, what I'd like to do now is to try and point out to you some of the key things about this story. It's beautiful and it gets better than this. You've got the hard part here. First, I want to point out to you the multiple references to returning that are scattered through the chapter. Not all the English translations pick them up, use the same word in all places. So I'm going to point them out to you using the word return. Look at verse 6. Naomi decides to return from Moab. In verse 7, the two women begin a return to Judah. In verse 8, Naomi urges the women to return to Moab. In verse 10, the daughters-in-law assure Naomi that they will return to Judah. In verses 11 and 12, Naomi urges them to return. In verse 15, Naomi notes that Orpah has returned and uses Ruth and urges Ruth to return. In verse 16, Ruth tells Naomi to stop urging her to return. In verse 21, Naomi says that it was the Lord who caused her to return home empty. And in verse 22, we're told that both of them returned from the land of Moab back to Israel. There's one other thing I need to tell you about the Hebrew word for return. You know what it's used for elsewhere in the Bible? Elsewhere in the Old Testament? It's used for repentance. Why? Because what you do in repentance is you turn away from going one way to going another way. 
Okay? So, and that's exactly what's at the centre of this passage. For bang in the middle, what do we see? We see a foreigner returning to God and we see, and the multiple references to turning or returning just serves to highlight this. This woman is a woman becoming God's person. Isn't that terrific? A woman siding with God's people. That's the first thing. Second thing to notice is the emphasis on names in the chapter. By way of example, uh, all important people are named and their names seem to mean something, which is not unusual in the ancient world. For example, Naomi's name, do you know what it means? Pleasant. She says, that's a lie. (laughs) It's not been very pleasant. Um, In verse 11 she indicates her chief, chief feelings are not pleasant but bitter. Hence she'd rather have be called Mara or bitterness than Naomi. Then there are the sons, Marlon and Kilion. Their names could be translated, I bet you'd never name your kids this when you have them. Weak and sickly. <laughs> They're not great names to go and carry around for the rest of your life, are they? Perhaps they were given because they were born in famine. In any case, they live up to their names and die. Third, orpah means nape of the neck. That's this part here. Okay, nape of the neck. And she lives up to her name as well. Why? Because she's coming this way and she goes that way, leaves the nape of her neck visible. But the name I want to concentrate on is the name the Lord or Yahweh. Do you remember what I said back at the beginning? I told you that the word Kesed and the name Yahweh or Lord are often linked. In fact, in many ways, Kesed is the word used to describe his character in the Old Testament. He is Kesed, Kesed. He is the Lord, the Lord. Let's have a look at the references to the Lord in the chapter. So now, let me show them to you. In verse 6, can you see it there? The Lord visits his people and gives them food. In verse 8, Naomi prays that the Lord will deal kindly with her daughters-in-law as they have dealt kindly with her. In verse 9, she prays that the Lord might grant them rest. In verse 13, she says that the hand of the Lord has turned against her. In verse 17, Ruth uses the name of the Lord in a curse against herself should she break her vow to Naomi. And finally, in verse 21, Naomi says the Lord has caused her to return empty. Now, with all that said, here's the big bonus for tonight, for today. I want to show you the one reference to Kesed in the chapter. I wonder if you can spot it there. It's in verse 8. Have a look at it. So I'll substitute the word. Each of you go back to your mother's home this is Naomi, and may the Lord show Kesed to you as you have shown to the dead and to me. Can you hear what is being said in this chapter? Can you hear Naomi's bitterness? Can you hear her cry of anguish, her grief? Naomi can ask the Lord to deal Kesed for others, but her own personal experience is that the Lord's hand is against her. The only kesed she feels is that she has it being experienced from this foreign woman who allies herself with her. 
Her prayer for women is a prayer for herself, I think. That's what she longs for. Friends, she longs for God to be like Ruth. She longs for God to be like Ruth. She longs for God to be for her and with her, to give her unexpected kindness, mercy and love. And that is how the chapter ends. It's tantalizing, isn't it? You think, will God do this? Will the Lord respond in the way she said? We know he's come to the aid of his people. And so we ask ourselves, will he come to the aid of this poor woman? This poor, impoverished, destitute, bitter woman. Will he be the Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love in Kesed? That's my overview of the chapter. I've tried to open it up for you because all of this is the groundwork for the weeks to come when things will get deeper and richer. You know what though? I I struggled to work out how I could finish this sermon. (laughs) The verses have been wonderful in what they've said and terrifying in what they've said. But the last voice is that of Naomi. And what's it full of? Doubt, isn't it? This last verse is full of doubt. Doubts about God. Full of accusation and emptiness and bitterness. But you know, as I reflected on it, I thought it wasn't a bad place to end after all. You see, Naomi has experienced the ambiguity of faith in God. On the one hand, she knows he is the source of all good things. She knows he's sovereign and all-powerful and can give all good things. He has controlled her existence and shaped what has happened to her. On the other side, she knows that his nature is to show kesed. She knows that the best you can pray for for a person is that he does it. But the reality is that life for her has not been like that and is not like that at the moment. Instead, God seems distant and the only kesed coming to her comes from outsiders who treat her well, like Ruth. And in the face of this, she can simply lament and express her grief among her fellow believers. She can tell God how she feels and then she can wait for him to be what she knows he will be and wishes him to be. He cannot be pushed. He is the God of all the earth. He cannot be bullied. Now friends, let's think about this as God's Christian people. You see, in Christ we have a greater revelation than that of the Old Testament. We who are in Christ, as I know many of you here are, have seen God's greatest act of kesed in all of history. We have seen God's unexpected, surprising, overwhelming kindness and love in the undeserved death of Jesus on our behalf. If there was an act of Kesed anywhere in history, that was it. But, and here's the but, some of us have also experienced this, some of us who have also experienced this love of God in Christ are still faced with ambiguities, aren't we? Our daily existence still sometimes raises questions for us. Some of us still experience things that seem to 
to look as though God's hand is against us in some way. Well, friend, if that is you here today, then I think there are two things you can learn from this chapter. And friends, I I speak from a depth of experience here because I've experienced some of those things as well. First, learn from Naomi. Express your grief. Express it to God. Express it among the people of God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm convinced that we Christians are too triumphalist. We have forgotten how to lament. Please, please, don't neglect it. Express your grief. If you are grieved, express it. Express it straightforwardly to God. Go tell him. Express it among the people of God. It's done in the Psalms all the time. Do you know, do you know how many Psalms are laments? There's 150 Psalms. How many of them, what proportion of them are lament? One third. One third of the Psalms are saying back to God, why is this happening? No, be honest with and before God. Learn from Naomi. I have been there. I was diagnosed with uh, severe depression at one point in my ministry and I had to take this to God because it may have meant that I could not have continued in ministry. And I did. And I learned something deep. I learned just as the psalmist does about God's mercy and kindness. Second thing to learn comes from Ruth. You see, she saw Naomi's grief. She saw Naomi's bitterness. She saw her honest reflections upon God. But she knew that life was found with this God. And despite the ambiguity, she lined up with him. So she saw this woman in all her grief saying, don't do it. And she lined up with the Lord. She chose life with this God above the alternatives in the world. Sisters and brothers in Christ, to whom else can we go but to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who was willing to give his Son for our good? There may be temporary ambiguities, let me tell you, but we know they'll all be sorted out. After all, we who know the Lord Jesus Christ know like he knew that his Father is for us. So let's trust him. Let's trust in God's love for us demonstrated on the cross. There is the greatest act of love in human history where he says, I love you so much, I let my son die in your place. Let's wait for his son from heaven. Let's wait for him to set things right in a new heavens and a new earth. Naomi did not have what we have if we are Christian. Ruth did not have what we have. We have seen what the, the extent to which God will go to, to care for us. How much more confident can we be? Let's pray. Father,
we thank you so much for our Lord Jesus Christ, whom you allowed, whom you sent to die for us. Father, please help us when we face those hard times, those hard times in life and those hard times in ministry. Please help us. Please help us to turn to your love displayed in the cross and to wait for your Son from heaven who will set everything right. Thank you, Father. Please help us in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.